Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 151, The Central Plains War. Now that I've properly reintroduced the big pieces on the board of what was Kuomintang, China in 1928, it's high time we get the show on the road and see how sniping warlords would ruin everything yet again. So, Chiang Kai-shek and the KMT were victorious at the Northern Expedition by the latter part of 1928, with Zhang Zhulang and the Feng Tian clique formally accepting Nanjing's leadership at the end of December. On the surface, at least, all of China was flying the nationalist flag. Sun Yat-sen's dream had been accomplished, and the tutelage phase of guiding the country into becoming a modern liberal state could begin in earnest. Except the displays of national unity on the surface were all too ephemeral in reality. In the process of marching south to north, Chang and the NRA were helped along just as much by defections of warlord troops sensing which way the wind was blowing as battlefield victories. Last season, I lamented that there weren't that many battles to really cover in detail as far as clever stratagems or feats of daring-do went. The Nationalists won because their armies didn't cut and run, while everybody else's did. The armies of many warlords were still in the field, and Chang found himself ruling over the center-east quadrant of the nation, with the four major warlord groups I talked about last week becoming allies and effective co-rulers. With their membership into the KMT, Chang was obliged to create an ad hoc system in order to establish uh, some kind of hierarchy without offending their sensibilities and provoking a new civil war immediately. Branch political councils were established, which were committees that would oversee the administration of clusters of provinces. Clusters that corresponded exactly with the territorial holdings of the new KMT warlords. Each of the major factions would control their councils, and ergo control the governance of and appointments within their provinces, just as they had in the past. Theoretically, the councils were subordinate to the central political council based in Nanjing and controlled by Chang, but the reality was that they were again autonomous. This was a big problem, both in terms of practicality and ideology. The warlords were obviously going to be a fractious lot and would undermine the Nanjing government at every turn, just as they had when other factions had controlled the central government. Ideologically, part of the Nationalist mission was to purge the nation of warlordism in general and establish a modern administration for the whole country. People had been excited about the KMT because they promised to get rid of all the warlords. The sticking point was how to actually wind these warlord factions down once and for all. The nation was exhausted from all the war, and while Chang's portion of the NRA was far and away superior to its counterparts, it was outnumbered by the combined warlords by over two to one. The warlords themselves were no fools and perfectly understood their continued prominence rested on being able to command independent military force. Chang opted to try his hand at diplomatically engaging with his rivals, both as a tactic to see if he could divide them, as well as to give the public the impression that he was going to be eminently reasonable. His initial idea was to discuss demobilization. This was a perfectly sensible topic to get talk started with the factional leaders, as reducing troop numbers was in everyone's interest. In total, there were officially 1.5 million men under arms in China, and the actual number was probably double that. The armies were a massive drain on resources, and an ordered reduction in numbers would help everyone. Cheng began a train tour of the nation starting on June 18, 1928, before Zhang in the north had even made his formal submission to the new government. 
He traveled to various regional capitals of the factions to personally ask them to travel with him to Beijing to hold a joint conference on the topic of demobilization. In China, there is a culture of prestige where, to indicate strength, you induce others to come to you, otherwise you might look weak. Cheng, though, played the appearances game by doing a double reverse card flip thing and presented himself as willing to humble himself for the sake of the nation which made him look like the bigger man to the public. And it also meant that anyone who refused him looked hostile. Li Zongrin, a leader of the Guangxi clique and never a fan of Chang's, was highly annoyed at his tactics and decided to deliver his own message. When Chang was calling on him in Wuhan, Li and his subordinates skipped out of the joint banquet that their two entourages were supposed to have together. Li pleaded that he and his guys were hard-scrabble dudes who didn't do banquets, but the message was, was clear. Don't expect to grand gesture your way into getting what you want. Still, Li joined the trip heading up to Beijing. On July 6th, Chang met with the assembled warlords, the first time all the big ones were together. As a group, they made a pilgrimage to Sun Yat-sen's tomb in the hills west of Beijing. Uh, side note, that wouldn't be Soon's final resting place. His permanent mausoleum would be established outside Nanjing in the next year. Dramatically, Chang stood at the head of the group and made a report to his deceased leader that the expedition had been a success. The gesture was to demonstrate that he was the true successor to Soon. Chang broke down in tears before Soon's remains after completing the report. Li, for his part, could hardly hold back his anger and recollected later in life that it was regrettable that he himself could not cry on command like Chang could. Poor Feng Yuzhang was left to take the role of servant and help lead a sobbing Chang away. The theatrics, which were widely publicized, put the warlords on the defensive. Keep in mind, this was in the immediate aftermath of the expedition. Chang had just won big time, and the people were going nuts for what they envisioned China was to become and the warlords weren't about to openly stand against such public enthusiasm. When they all sat down on July 11th and 12th to hash out the details for how their standing armies would be reduced, they were open to make at least on-paper concessions. Their position wasn't helped by the fact that the KMT had gotten together economists from all across the nation to look at the state's finances. The picture they uniformly painted was a grim one, with the national debt projected to spiral out of control with the current army sizes. These findings were published in the lead-up to the mid-July meetings, so it was all common knowledge by the time the talk started. Chang's proposals were to completely overhaul the top levels of the military and cut the NRA's size down to a grand total of 500,000 men at most. The commander-in-chief role of the NRA would be eliminated, meaning Chang was on paper putting himself out of a job. However, it would be replaced by a national military council made up of the four primary warlord leaders and five KMT officials from the Central Executive Committee, of which Chang would assuredly be one. Those five KMT spots would all be controlled by Chang, meaning he'd be able to overrule the warlords even if they presented a united front. The scattered armies would be merged into a single national one, and to fill out its ranks, only the best and most proven soldiers would be kept on. The rest would go through demobilization councils on the provincial level and assign jobs, which included police work, industrial gigs, and land reclamation projects. Because something everybody learned the hard way was that warlord troops suddenly thrown out on the street was a surefire way to get a bandit army running around. The provinces would keep small forces of 3,000 men paid for from their own treasuries for local military action. 
The trick with this proposal wasn't just the National Council being dominated by Cheng, but also how the troops were selected. The best trained and best performing troops were those in Cheng's portion of the army, so as the warlords would see mostly their own guys be sent home, Cheng's loyal, battle-hardened troops would stay on. Oh, also the ad hoc branch political councils would be disbanded and the provinces would, would report directly to Nanjing. While the warlords agreed to Chang's face with the proposals, behind his back, none of them had any intention of actually carrying the orders out. The elimination of the councils would remove their formal political standing, and the demobilization would send their armies home. Li would comment that Chang was deliberately trying to provoke them into doing something stupid. What's kind of funny is that Li would very quickly proceed to do the exact stupid thing he called out, all the while thinking he was smart enough to overcome the pitfalls of confronting Chang. Because while relations between the warlords and Chang in the months following the conference remained cordial, Li had absolutely no intention of actually complying with the plan. And for the back half of 1928, Chang himself was kind of tied up. There was the whole establishing a central government thing in Nanjing, making sure central China was secure, and finally getting Zheng Zhulang on board with the KMT program. That last bit was made easier on Cheng because Zheng Zhongcheng, the dog meat general I talked about last season, as being one of the Feng Tian clique's more colorful commanders, and a, also a smattering of other warlords based in Shandong province, all decided not to accept the young marshal taking over his dad's spot. They opted to challenge young Zheng and head on in, a, in August invaded Manchuria with 60,000 men. Young Zheng was met with some difficulty as many of the Feng Tian commanders were lukewarm on his leadership, but his new buddy Cheng came through for him. Deploying the NRA northwards, Zheng Zhongcheng and his allies were caught between the NRA to the south and the Feng Tian loyalists to the north and promptly fell to pieces. Young Zheng then proceeded to pledge his allegiance to the KMT. With the dawn of 1929, Cheng was ready to again address demobilization. And wouldn't you know it, so was Li Zonggren and the Guangxi clique, just not in the same way. On February 21st, 1929, Li used his authority as leader of his branch political council to fire the governor of Hunan province. The man had been convinced by Chang to send tax revenues to Nanjing instead of to Li, and Li did not appreciate that one bit. Li also didn't appreciate Chang throwing around a little bit of bribe money to convince some Guangxi clique commanders to defect to the central government. Chang responded a month later on March 14th by dissolving all the branch political councils across the board and moved more specifically against Li on the 21st when he shuttered the demobilization council in the Guangxi clique-controlled zone and instead decentralized responsibilities to provincial commanders, not all of whom were loyal to Li. On the 26th, Li and Bai Chongzhi, who was the Guangxi clique commander who had taken up governance of the Hebei province up north, were both expelled from the KMT. So was the pro-Guangxi clique governor of Guangdong province, who was quickly replaced by a much more independent general named Chen Jitang. Thrown completely off balance, Li and Bai tried to gain the initiative by invading Guangdong province in May, but Chen successfully resisted the invasion. The Guangxi clique then tried to move troops into Hunan province to focus against Cheng, but the NRA had beaten them to the punch and secured the province. And help wasn't forthcoming from the other anti-Cheng groups, as Feng Yuzhang, their best bet for an ally, had been bought off by Chang with both money and the promise of adding Shandong province to his domains. The 230,000 men of the Guangxi clique were on paper a formidable force, but 
they had lost all the outlying provinces they had gained uh, during the northern expedition and faced a superior NRA force. Despite acquitting themselves well during the expedition, the Guangxi forces were still warlord troops and did not wish to die for their commanders. By the end of June, Li and Bai were beaten and forced to take refuge in French Indochina, although they returned to Guangxi shortly after Cheng leaving the area. While their army would come back together quickly enough, they'd never again have as extensive a domain as they had enjoyed for the past half year. Their army getting a chance to come back together turned out to be a sooner rather than later thing because Cheng wasn't content with humbling one warlord clique. In May, before Cheng had finished off the Guangxi warlords, Feng decided he would go to war with Cheng after all. The reason was because while he had gotten the money Cheng had promised him, the Generalissimo had done a little bit of backstabbing of his own and refused to turn over Shandong province when it became obvious that the war down south was going to be wrapped up in short order. Feng's subordinates made a public declaration of accusing Chang of being a dictator and asking their boss to accept their request to lead a battle of resistance, something he gladly accepted. Feng declared himself commander-in-chief of the Northwest Army to protect the party and save the nation, which was an impressive title but didn't translate into success. On May 23rd, he too was expelled from the KMT, and Chang dispersed some of that Shanghai money to Feng's subordinates, convincing 100,000 out of Feng's 220,000 soldiers to defect over to Cheng. Feng quickly beat a hasty retreat with what troops would follow him and fled to Shanji, taking refuge with Yan Jishan after declaring one of his periodic retirements. Yan, for his part, had continued to remain neutral, but that too was a result of bribes, and with the Guamanjun and the Guangxi clique badly mauled, Cheng felt secure in cutting off that financial aid which convinced Yan that he shouldn't expect to be placated anymore. This led to him getting in touch with Fang and Li and setting up a united front against Chang, which would lead to the most ferocious of the warlord conflicts and our main event for this week, the Central Plains War. Now, Chang was understandably feeling rather pleased with himself by June 1929 and openly took full control of the Demobilization Council in August 1929, demanding that his proposed drawdowns move forward and be completed by March of next year. This set off still more conflicts, as a local minor commander who had fought for Chang against the Guangxi clique turned his troops around and marched south to join them and invade the Guangdong province in November 1929. He might have heard the demobilization news and didn't like it one bit. At the same time, Feng's subordinates, even with their boss in exile, got together and struck out again for Henan province from the remaining bases in Shanxi. While both rebellions were quickly quashed, another minor commander took his division and tried to move on Wuhan in December 1929. Again, this one was quickly dispatched, but the constant whack-a-mole game being played demonstrated how far the Nanjing government had to go before its authority was respected. Meanwhile, for men like Yan Jishan, still in command of a full army, Cheng's demand for demobilization was an impossible expectation and he moved forward with assembling the aggrieved warlords together. His plan was not only to create a military alliance against Chang, but to preface that confrontation with a political campaign to at least make a show to the public that he and the others were reasonable men, and that it was Chang who was the power-hungry warmonger. Despite the public being sick to death of the warlords, by early 1930, they had gotten tired of the Kuomintang as well. I'm going to get into this later, but the KMT very rapidly wore out their welcome. 
This was on account of not only incorporating many of the corrupt elements of the national government that had preceded them, but also brutally suppressing dissent against the KMT. Oh, and completely reneging on many of the social changes they kicked around before the Northern Expedition as well. Everybody was disappointed with how the government was panning out, and despair had set in all over again after a brief flicker of hope. Yan had also reached out to Cheng's opponents among the rank and file of the Kuomintang. Wang Jingwei on the party's left, and even the extreme right Western Hills clique of party officials that had tangled with Cheng in the past were included among them. These guys would provide a political basis for the future confrontation. On February 10th, 1930, Yan sent a performative message to Cheng, urging that for the good of the nation, that they both resign and let the others run the country. This was predictably declined, and Yan and Fang declared a northern coalition in March 1930. Rapidly, all the warlords and disaffected KMT officials flocked to Yan's banner. By March 20th, Yan was calling for his supporters to start marching. The plan was for his and Fang's armies to march east into Henan province and cut communications between Beijing and Nanjing. A secondary thrust by Yan's forces would take Shandong province, which would neatly contain Chang to central China. The Guangxi clique would again attempt to march north to Wuhan, completing the vice from the south. On hand, Chang had 300,000 troops able to take the field for this battle, while the warlords could, could summon up 700,000. The war would prove to be the most intensive five months of fighting yet seen in China. Whereas most engagements of the warlord era were quick affairs where the superiority of one side was quickly demonstrated, this was a slugging match where strength was pitted against strength and neither side were inclined to give an inch. The damage inflicted on the battlefields was devastating, as was the collateral damage to the infrastructure of the lands that the uh, conflict touched. The primary field of action would be the central plains of China, where the Yellow River passed through on the way to the sea, uh, hence the name of the conflict. The fighting would be set against a backdrop of flatlands covered in endless farms. The threat of attack coming from multiple directions presented a dire challenge to the NRA forces, as they lacked the numbers to deal with both the north and southern fronts. Cheng opted to meet the northern offensive head-on before his enemies could join forces. On May 11, 1930, he set out from Zhuxiao in Jiangsu province and approached the city of Kaifeng. Feng's army marched out of Shanxi province and into Henan, while Yan entered Shandong further to the north of both of them. This time, Feng's commanders weren't receptive to bribery and met the NRA on open ground. Chang had the quality edge, but Fang's troops refused to break, and instead pressed their numbers advantage to slowly push back the NRA into eastern Henan. In fact, his cavalry unwittingly came within a couple miles of Chang himself, who was waiting for a train to evacuate him from the city of Chongqiu. Chang, getting a first-hand experience on how the situation was slipping away from him, ordered a general counteroffensive, this time with heavy guns concentrated to back his attacking forces. Feng, knowing his opponent's aggressive nature, was prepared for this move and opted to give ground and try to get the NRA to become disorganized as it advanced. Once they were strung out, Feng would have troops waiting on the flanks to encircle them. Thanks to Cheng's superior intelligence services, though, he saw the trap being laid and he kept the rate of his advance deliberately slow, which just led the campaign to descend into a bloody stalemate. In Shandong province, Yan was met by Feng's old troops that had switched sides the year previously. While those troops didn't flip back over, they weren't inclined to fight to the death either, and by June 25th had abandoned the provincial capital, Jinan, to Yan's troops. 
Jan himself was a conservative commander who rarely ventured out of his home province, so a leisurely campaign suited him far more than the cage match happening to his south. Things were looking bad for Chang by the end of June, and he even entertained the possibility of making a settlement along the lines of the mid-1928 power structure, which would have confined him to central China and ended the dream of a centralized state. But his enemies were getting cocky and spurned his attempts at negotiating, which, to be fair to them, Chang did have a habit of spinning out negotiations just to divide his enemies against each other. But events in the South offered a ray of hope for Chang. The Guangxi clique, once again under the command of Li Zongren and Bai Shongji, set out from their home province to try one more time at taking Wuhan, and from there, linking up with the northern battles. The 95,000-odd troops encountered no resistance marching through Hunan, and had taken the province's capital of Changsha by June 4th. Wuhan was just a little way up the Yangtze River to the north, and seemingly wide open. The NRA commander on the scene, He Yingchen, had far fewer troops available with the big battles happening to the north, and so planned to exploit the distances that separate the Guangxi soldiers from their home bases, trading space for time. When it was clear Changsha could not be defended, he ordered the local troops to retreat to Changde in the northwest, instead of Wuhan to the northeast. This served to make Li paranoid, as he suspected the forces fleeing in the wrong direction would simply regroup and attack his rear as he himself headed to Wuhan. This meant the Guangxi advance was slowed, as Li kept an intent eye on everything except Wuhan. Meanwhile, on June 10th, an NRA force of about 16,000 men had marched out of Guangdong province and occupied the city of Hanyang in southern Hunan. This was important because it was a major transportation hub and effectively cut Li's army off from Guangxi. Li's issues were compounded because Hunan province was in the midst of a drought, and food was in short supply. Given that the engineering troops that would be vital for fighting in the river country surrounding Wuhan were still south of Hengyang and therefore cut off from him, Li decided to abandon the attack and go back south to restore his supply line. The withdrawal was like blood in the water, and suddenly all the NRA-aligned commanders in the greater region that had been keeping their heads down now rushed in to help intercept Li's army. The confrontation commenced in mid-June, and Li's army, vulnerable on the march through the hill country of southern China, was assailed from all sides. Retaking Hengyang became impossible, and Li had to bypass it to the west just to get back to Guangxi. His demoralized army would not take the field again, and the Guangxi clique was ignominiously removed from the board. Some troops were left to cordon them off in their home province, but the victory allowed tens of thousands of soldiers to be transferred north, with more freed up once it became clear that the clusters of warlords in the south weren't going to make any trouble. But even with the major defeat of the south, Yan and Fang were feeling good enough that they figured the war could be won in the north alone. Yan even went so far as assembling in July an ad hoc and large conference at the Kuomintang during a joint conference in Beijing. Seeing that his battles with Fang were going nowhere, Cheng shifted his focus against Yan and Shandong, especially as troops from the south were freed up to be deployed there. The downfall of Yan's own lack of participation in the civil wars of the past two decades was that his army wasn't nearly as experienced as his allies, and they did not acquit themselves well when they came under attack in late July. By August 15th, Jinan was back in Chang's hands, and Yan was forced to appeal to Fang to launch a relief attack. Fang focused his efforts on the city of Zhushao, a critical railway junction that would ease communication with Yan and impede Chang's forces. It would also open the way to a march on Nanjing. From August 6th to the 10th, the two sides went at it again. 
This time, the weather turned bad, and the fighting was conducted during gigantic thunderstorms. Not only was visibility reduced, but the ground was turned into an ocean of mud. It also meant that Chang had the advantage as Fang had to attack into his forces, sitting in prepared positions. The situation was dangerous, as Chang was fully occupied in Shandong and couldn't send in reinforcements. But his battle-hardened NRA troops held, while Fang's melted away. By the end of August, all of Yan's gains had been lost, and his troops were fleeing back to their starting positions. The fighting spirit of the warlord troops had held for longer than they ever had, but had finally broken against the at least partially professional NRA. During this entire war so far, the wild card had been Zhang Zhulang and the Feng Tian clique. He had accepted Cheng's leadership in 1928, and had only loosely associated himself with Yan's opposition in late 1929, only promising weapon and supply deliveries to the anti-Chang forces. All through the war, though, Yan had pleaded with the young marshal to join them directly. Zheng, though, was still smarting from a run-in with the Soviet Union, and while that incident probably hadn't endeared Chang to him, it also didn't mean he supported ending the one viable chance of making a strong government capable of seeing off foreign interlopers which was something that Yan really didn't have an answer for, seeing as how his own experience was twiddling his thumbs in the impoverished Shenzi province. The collapse of Fang's August offensive and the general failure of the coalition convinced Zhang to do the cool move of supporting the winning side after the fight was effectively over. On September 18th, Zhang proclaimed his loyalty to the Nanjing government and deployed his own army into northern China. His decision was also on account of Chang's very generous cash bribe and promise of governing Beijing in the Hebei province, which, unlike his promises to Feng the year previous, was one Chang actually delivered on. The rest of the war was perfunctory. Yan fled back to Shenzhi. Chang hounded Feng's Guomajun troops so badly that that army fell apart for the last time. Uh, Feng tried to stick it out to the end, but his commanders defected over to Chang and the NRA took over Shanxi province in October. The results of the war were, for once, decisive. The two sides had suffered 300,000 casualties total, and the power of the warlords had been badly broken. Cheng's own forces had suffered enough that he couldn't get rid of the regional commanders entirely, but they no longer could challenge him, and they knew it. Li, despite his distaste for Cheng, would reconcile with them and continue their rocky working relationship. Yan wouldn't deploy his army again outside of Shenzhi. Feng lost his army for the last time and resigned himself to military commands in Inner Mongolia, helping organize anti-Japanese operations there, and eventually becoming a kind of figurehead statesman to the KMT during the general war with that nation. He would never again be trusted with a major command, but continued to be a face and a name. On the political side, Wang Jingwei would reconcile and return to his normal duties in the KMT. It is truly astounding how often Wang and Chang would go in against each other, but each time, Chang would let him back into the fold. Take that as a demonstration to just how much Wang was respected as an organizer and thinker within the KMT, that Chang found him more useful as an active participant in the party, as opposed to just putting a bullet in his head. Zheng came out ahead, not having to fight at all, and scooping up northern China up to the Yellow River. For Chang, though, it was a mixed victory. He was undisputedly the leader of China from that point forward, the heir to Sun Yat-sen. This could be seen as the real end of the northern expedition, the final humbling of the warlords. Their power was laid lower than it ever had been, and this opened up opportunities to expand state power in regions that had been previously out of bounds. But the war had exposed how deeply dissatisfaction went with his government. 
national unity was revealed to be an illusion, and military force would be permanently needed to hold the country together. The project of preparing China for future confrontations, and Chiang was looking hard at Japan there, was obviously going to be a long and frustrating one. And next week, the effort only gets more frustrating. With the warlords defeated, Chiang felt secure enough to focus his attentions on an enemy he justifiably had a healthy concern of, the communists. And in the midst of his campaigns against them, wouldn't you know it, the Kwantung army decided to invade Manchuria. If Chiang felt like he was riding high at the end of 1930, he sure as hell wouldn't be at the end of 1931. But before we get to that point, I want to take a little interlude next week. I mentioned that Zhang Zhulang and the Fang Tian clique had a little run-in with the Soviet Union. Well, that border war did a good job of clipping Zhang's wings when it came to foreign entanglements, driving him closer to Chiang, and helped get the Japanese thinking about what it would take to keep the region out of the USSR's reach. So, join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Music